podcast listeners. You are tuning in for the freshest, the latest Rational Faith podcast, the best podcast on the Blabbernacle. Today, as the title suggests, we have another episode of Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist. And in this episode, as usual, she answers two questions. The first question deals with the problem of being in a marriage and balancing the duties of life, balancing the needs of having family meals, of spending time with the children, of being concerned with interests and fears and simply activities that perhaps are not high on your priority list. Jennifer does a great job discussing how this can affect a marriage and and most importantly what steps we can take to get ourselves out of a rut if we are in one and be able to become a become aware of the contributions we're making to our marriage. And the second question has to do with single LDS people who want to maintain a positive relationship with their sexuality and yet keep the covenants of chastity. And for most Mormons, that sounds like an impossibility. Um, But I think Jennifer, as usual, gives us some, some good advice in this area. So as usual, let's jump right in. All right. Hey, everyone. We are back again with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife for another round of Ask a Mormon Sex Therapist. I just made that sound like a game show. (laughs) All right. Well, we have two questions today. And oh, we're also here with Brian Dillman. I'm right here. Yo. (laughs) So here's the first question. I've struggled with a situation in my marriage and have heard friends hint at similar feelings. So I thought I'd throw it out there to see if it's worth discussing on a podcast. Here's the deal. I have a good husband. He loves me. He loves the kids. He goes to work every day and makes a comfortable living for us. This is all awesome, except beyond those borders, he exhibits very little involvement in anything else. He's got his work and personal hobbies, and there's just no energy or interest in home kid responsibilities. He shows up and does what he's asked to do, but very little beyond that. I've always tried very hard to not henpeck and give him his space, but it's hard feeling like the bulk of responsibility to keep our house and family functioning is on me. It's not that he's being cruel. He's just completely oblivious to what's happening outside his personal interests. This is frustrating because it extends into the bedroom. My interest in sex is, well, it's just one more thing I have to do to keep our house functioning. It's incredibly difficult for me to feel erotic with a person that I feel I have to take care of constantly. It's almost like having another child I'm responsible for rather than feeling like an equal partner. Talking about this is really tricky because I don't want to shame him into feeling like he's the world's worst husband and father. He's not. And I worry maybe I just have unrealistic expectations for him. Maybe the 1950s marriage model is fine. It just certainly doesn't help my sex drive. My husband sees it as two completely separate issues. Sex is one, home family is another. For me, there's just so much overlap, I can't compartmentalize it the way he does. Help. Okay, that's an excellent question. Um, It's a very, very common question, a very common challenge, and it's not unusual to have that experience affect desire, the experience of feeling like 
you know, I don't know if my husband's really invested in my life or invested in the things that I'm doing to have that affect how open or desirous you feel towards him. So let me just talk about it for sort of stepping back from their particular situation and just sort of look at the larger social uh, reality that this couple's functioning in. And that is that, you know, the, that since feminism of the 1960s and 70s, that the roles that women get social validation for have expanded. Um, but the roles that men get social validation for have not. So, you know, feminism has addressed the economic inequality between men and women and has, I think, forged many new possibilities for women. But the reality is, is that, you know, while men had more power and feminism was acknowledging that women haven't had access to that same power, what I think has been lost in the larger conversation is that women were traditionally doing very important societal work, which is the upholding of family and society. And work that's very fundamental to the well-being um, of the collective. And so what I think has happened, given that not both realities have been valued, is that, um, is it basically that women, because women's identities are wrapped around both things now. So now women often want to work or are contributing economically, but they also have their identities wrapped around doing those social roles well of family and household and, and so on. And so men don't get judged if the house is a mess like a woman might. And men don't get judged if the birthday party for their child is lame, but women very well might. And so what it often means is that you know, because there's, men get so little validation for, you know, if a woman says, oh, I've spent all day cleaning the house and, you know, I got the garden weeded and everything, people are like, oh, my gosh, that's great. They're female, you know, friend, like that's being a good woman. If a man says, I spent the whole day cleaning the house, people will think, man, you know, he's like being run around by his wife. <laughs> uh, so there's, you know, I think given that um, basically – um, there's no real social upside for men. And so I think, and, and because it hasn't been expected of them in the same way, I think it's very easy for men to not see the burdens that women carry around the functioning of family life um, because they've never really had to take ownership of those realities that they benefit from, you know, that contribute to their well-being. But it's easy to go blind to it because they're just not, Involved, they don't have ownership over making it happen, generally speaking. And so women very often feel like they're shouldering disproportionately. And, you know, if you look statistically, research shows like women usually are putting in far more hours than men are in terms of the family. So I think it exposes an entitled position that men still enjoy, really. And, you know, I think it's easy. It's just easy to take advantage because because they're just not expected and they haven't really been involved in them, generally speaking. So I think the reality, though, is that this deeply affects women's sense of desire. 
Now, if we go back to the 1950s model for a moment, the thing is that, is that there was no expectation really of men coming home and contributing to family life. I mean, they came home and that was really women's domain. Um, but women also had sex out of duty then too. The expectation of women, women having sex out of a position of desire was not part of the, of the framework. It wasn't the part of the way that, that society thought about sex. And so the whole notion of what a marriage should be and what men and women should be has shifted um, that now we're thinking about, you know, desire. Women should desire and want her husband, not just accommodate him. And so to really desire and want someone, you have to feel like this person wants not just to have sex, that this person wants me. And for a woman to feel like he really wants me is I have to track that he really is invested in my life. You know, that he's invested in my well-being and he cares about the things that matter to me and he's not going to take advantage of me. And if she feels like he's willing to take advantage of me or he's willing to go blind, you know, even though I've talked about it many times, he's willing to not, still not take any ownership in this it's very easy to feel like, you know, maybe I'll accommodate you to keep you happy enough, but I don't feel like you really desire me as a person because your behavior betrays the lack of investment in the things that I'm doing. I think, I think like you said, it's very natural for, for uh, depending on the family situation that a man grew up in, seeing his father and grandfathers the way they behaved, it could be very natural for a man to kind of, you know, when dinner's over, he goes and watch watches sports or whatever and catches up on that because he worked all day, so he's contributed, right. that sort of thing. But one thing where this hits closer to home for me is when, and kind of in the theme of rational face on the fringes of Mormonism when you have a faith crisis or a feminist awakening or, or whatever it might be. Sometimes those new ways of thinking really overtake your, all of your free, free space in your head. Mm. You can often become enveloped in your own world and you're oblivious to mm -hmm. thing to the immediate things around you, to the kid's birthday party or the church activity that we were supposed to go to and we had to make a casserole or something and, and, you know, dress the kids up or whatever. And you're kind of, you're really focused on these existential questions mm -hmm. and, you know, learning the truth. And you feel like you, you feel compelled that this is like the most important thing that you can do right now, you know, and you feel like if you're, if you're able to comb your hair and get to work and get back home, that's, that's mm -hmm. like right. all you can do to stay alive. It's just emotionally that's the way it feels. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I'm just imagining a couple of different ways where this can sh crop up in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in different situations. And, you know, that's another one that I could see yeah. happening. And it's something that in the past we didn't have to negotiate how are we going to do this marriage thing. But now... Uh, because of the, the feminist movement, we have to do that. We have to take those steps and sit down and say, what is your role? What is my role? Are we going to cut things up equally? Are we, how, what kind of division of labor are we going to have in our home to keep things running mm -hmm. and you know, make everybody happy? And so that's, you can, if you go about it naturally, you can end up in this situation. Um, yes. But 
yeah, it's, it seems like you really have to sit down and renegotiate all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to the example that you brought up around somebody going through a faith crisis or being preoccupied for whatever reason, reason, whether they're going through some kind of grief or loss or whatever, I would say that's a more transient. What I would say is this couple in question may have a more fundamental dynamic that's just kind of ongoing, whether or not there's a more immediate distraction. You know, So if anybody in a partnership is going through a difficult time or is in a faith crisis or has suffered a loss of some kind, there's going to be a temporary if that's the only issue, that would be a more temporary grieving and reorganizing internally that would distract them from the more immediate realities of life. And so, you know, th- th- that would be sort of maybe a layer on top of perhaps a pre-existing dynamic. But then there's this issue of the pre-existing, the, this dynamic that I'm seeing in this couple is that you know, I'm trying not to nag, I'm trying not to be a pain, but I feel like he just doesn't really understand what I'm trying to manage. And I think, like you said, Brian, it's very easy if that's what your father did and that's what men do and that's even, you know, what men who aren't being run around by their wives do. It feels very comfortable to just sort of presume that's not my domain and I don't really know what to do there. And so I'm just going to go do what I've seen other men do, uh, uh, and it can expose a kind of privileged position uh, that women don't enjoy because now women in many respects have a double expectation. So I think that this is a very common dynamic. And I think that, um, you know, the book, I can't remember the name of the author right now. She wrote The Second Shift. is very much about this very challenge that modern f- marriages are facing. And so, you know, what can a wife do in this situation I mean, what what can a husband do? I think what a husband can do is actually confront that I need to be more invested. If I feel like I'm taking advantage, right, that if I were to – a lot of times what I'll do is ask people to think about their their daughter marrying somebody just like them if I'm talking to a man and saying, would you like your son-in-law? Okay, like what would you like about him and where? what wouldn't you like about him? You know, if it's sort of a step removed, like where would you see the entitlement in your son-in-law and what do you wish he would do differently to treat your daughter better? Um, that it can be an exercise that helps you to think about where are you blind to your own limitations that do negatively affect your spouse. Um what I would say to the wife who's the one asking this question is um, to look at what I would say to her is to first to look at how your behavior is involved in the dynamic between you. So is there a way in which you're engaging that justifies or solidifies this dynamic, even if you're doing it unwittingly? So, you know, I know many people who would rather see themselves, and I have no idea if this person does this, but who would rather see themselves as, as a superior victim, you know, a kind of a martyr role where they're working hard, they're sort of, you know, making everything happen, and they're sort of putting up with the lower functioning husband in a sense. And it gives them a sense of self through being feeling very needed and necessary and important, right? And so they don't, they're blind to their own investment in a particular 
self-perception. And so oftentimes the person who's invested in that self-perception will go and actually marry somebody who's lower on a need for control, who's lower on a, you know, doesn't engage as readily, maybe has fewer strong opinions. And it makes it easier for the person who wants higher levels of control or who wants to be seen as very needed and necessary in the family to be able to play out that identity. Um, so I would suggest you look at what does she think is her, what is the thing her husband critiques her about? What is the thing that's hard on him? Is there something that she does that justifies his passivity? I'm not saying it's literally justified because, of course, he can always stand up and not take advantage. But does she make it easier to justify his position just as he might be making it easy for her to justify her position? And so she may not be henpecking, but, like, is her engagement one that actually invites a different response from him, right? And I'm not just talking about being nice, but is she actually standing up in the marriage for something different? And when people are actually standing up for something different, always they have to grow themselves in order for something to be different. Now, like one way this person might need to grow is to actually let go of some of the control because what, because women's sense of self is so often wrapped around doing all of these things well at home is what they want is somebody who will come and do things the way they want them. Um, and, you know, I can, I can appreciate that, but nobody really wants to just be enslaved to anybody. <laughs> and so what you have to actually do is let go of some of the ownership. You, it's an identity shift. If you're really going to have a marriage and where you share uh, household functioning and family, uh, family responsibilities, you have to let go of some of the control and identity that might be wrapped around that. So, you know, I remember when I was um, when I was in college, we had to earn our own way through college in my family. And so my brother, my older brother had started a, an exterior painting business and I was an employee of his. And I really was not a good employee. I mean, I really wasn't. I, I mean, I wasn't trying to not be a good employee, but I, it was, he would decide when we were leaving to go to the house to paint. He would decide when we go home, you know, he would tell me which parts of the house to paint he would tell me how to paint it, you know, and he's a nice brother. It really, that wasn't the problem. It's just that I always sort of saw it through getting him to be okay with what I was doing, not taking ownership. The next year, I decided I would be a lot happier if I just ran my own company, and so I did an interior painting business, and then I hired my younger sister. Well, guess what? Now I was like on it. I was working hard. I was the one saying when we leave, when we go home. And she was I'm like, come on, Jane, let's go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like deja vu. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's all about ownership. So if you actually want your spouse to be more involved, you may look at the ways in which you're actually saying, I want ownership over this, but I want you to do it my way. Versus I really am willing to share in, I'm willing to be collaborative and I'm willing to take your input and I'm willing to do things more along the way that you would do them. Because sometimes it's about taking advantage, right? And sometimes it's about not valuing the same things and that the husband, just to use this example, doesn't value life happening in the same way that the wife does. And so 
the wife might say like, no, I want you to do it my way and it's really important that we do this in this way or you clean the kitchen in this way and so on rather than I really am willing to um, let go and relinquish some of that and allow you to actually parent in the way that you feel is right or be involved in planning some event in the way that you think, see is right so that you're relinquishing some of that identity that gets wrapped um, th that that women often carry around these domains and make it hard, make it difficult for men to actually step in in really uh, a meaningful way. So I think sometimes women often overfunction because they get a bigger vote when it comes to making decisions in the family, for example, or decisions around the kids. Or um, and so it's easy to not do it. So I think I think the question then is for this person asking the question is, is what's the upside for you in your overfunctioning dynamic? And if you were to relinquish some of that control or do engage in a different way that you think would actually invite a different kind of engagement from your husband, what would you have to give up or what would you have to develop in yourself? And you know, I would ask, are you really asking for help or input in a way that is actually standing up for something different to happen in the marriage because you know people often complain and they might even complain nicely enough but they're not really standing up for a different way of engaging around a family challenge so now you know I mean again it's both sides of this it's like but if the husband is fundamentally taking advantage then you know, he may say, well, I clean the, the way I clean the kitchen is I, um, I don't ever clean off the counters. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, that it's, that, that they say I have different, on the weekends, yeah, exactly. that's the way I do this. <laughs> so they might say, you know, my values are that I just don't uh, do laundry. Okay. Obviously that would be taking advantage. And so that, sh that collaboration only works when you really have two people who are willing to really care about one another, but that's not the same thing as saying, I'll do it your way. Okay. I'll, I'll care about you in this. I won't take advantage and I'll challenge the, the immaturities in me or the entitlement in me or the desire for control in me. Uh, but um, we also need to then be team players in making this happen and it's going to look different that way. Yeah. So we, it would probably take another hour to really answer this in any meaningful way. But if one is uh, <clears throat> taking advantage and is not aware of their male privilege, for instance, mm -hmm. how in the world do you wake them up to their uh, lack of awareness? Well, if I were in the, the wife's position, I mean, I would try very hard to think about how I am talking about um, my experience because I would want to be talking about about it in a way that would invite compassion rather mm -hmm. than defensiveness and self-protection. So I would be saying, I want you to see what I feel like I'm shouldering when you go up and you start reading the paper, you know, when you, or if you, if you disinvest or disengage or start thinking about, you know, more ethereal things, this is what I feel. And it's very hard for me. And I would say for the person who's being challenged as being in a privileged position, I, I would say do what, 
one or both of these exercises, just really literally think about what if I were married to me? What if I were in my spouse's shoes? What would that be like? What would a day be like in her shoes? What would I think of me? Would I want to have sex with me? <laughs> right? You know, why wouldn't I? Right? What would be hard to find desirable about me? And another way to think about it is, again, thinking about it from, like, your daughter. Mary, if, if, if it were the husband who's trying to question his privilege. Like, if my daughter were married to someone like me, what would I think about him? And what, what would I... I might have an opinion about what I wanted my daughter to do differently, but what would I want him to do differently to actually stand up and, and invest in the marriage in a good way, in a way that served my daughter well? Didn't coddle her, but actually served her well. So those are those ways are, to, to self-confront. Yeah, those are good questions of uh, introspection. Mm-hmm. I just had one kind of thought question on that was um i guess one thing that struck me from the question is this viewpoint of viewing your husband like just another child to take care of which you know mm-hmm. it sounds pretty much like it would kill any desire yeah, <laughs> like oh just got to take care of you um yeah. so what is a good way then from this perspective to um to both engage your husband to let him know you both to, well to engage him so that you can change that perspective yourself, you know, so that um, if someone is in a relationship where it feels like this is just a duty, I'm just taking care of someone, they're just another almost item on the list. Um, what is a good approach so that you can both change your own perspective of it as well as engage your partner um, so that your, the dynamic between you two can change? Well, what I'm, first of all, always talking about in my couples courses and things like that, that I, is that you can't change your partner and just might as well give it up. <laughs> the only thing you can change is your participation in a dynamic. It's the only thing you have control over. And the more you actually, I know this isn't your point, Laurel, but the more you're trying to get the other person to see, to do it the right way, um, the more you're going to actually just reinforce whatever dynamic you've already got in place. And so whenever you want to actually shift a dynamic, say a mother-child dynamic in a marriage, the mother has to confront her mothering. Because he may be acting like a child, but then I have to be acting like a mother. And so what do I think about how I'm engaging around these issues, and what would I need to do differently? Part of it is maybe I do want to condescend to him a little bit because of whatever that upside is for me, either the control or the sense of being the strong one or the superior one or whatever it is. And if I were to let go, relinquish that, meaning like to actually see my husband as being not a child and capable of much more and treating him like he is, that is to say, I'm not going to coddle you anymore, right? I want to have good sex. I don't like having sex with somebody that I feel like takes advantage of me or that I've got to coddle. And I recognize I've played a role in us creating this dynamic. And I'm, I'm really willing to hear how you see me doing that, but I think I'm doing it. Do you agree with me? How do you think that I sort of, what do you think is my role in that? And to be willing to see herself and then to shift it and to say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start actually expecting more of him and less of me. And I'm going to start um, treating him like he's an equal and like he's a man, like he can do a lot more. And so it, it shakes things up. But it always involves a kind of self-confrontation where the person that's in the, say, the mother side of this or the child side, whoever is self-confronting, is going to have to grow 
in order to shift the dynamics. You're going to have to become a stronger, more solid person who's not as invested in a in a collusive identity. All right. Well, that was uh, a lot of good information, good uh, food for thought. Our next question is chastity for single adults. <sighs> the question is, what advice do you have for single adults who are trying to embrace and understand their sexuality, while at the same time keeping the covenants of chastity. During the time that singles are full adults but not sexually involved with a spouse, what is a healthy response to sexual desires? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I just presented last weekend in New York City on this subject, and actually it will be posted on my website uh, the, a recording of that presentation, which is about 45 minutes. So that's one place where you get a lot more information uh, on that particular question, where I talk very much about the dilemmas and challenges that single LDS singles face in around the issues of sexuality and, and how I think those are related to maturation and, and development, um, adult development. Um, this, is, uh, this is a double bind. It's just, and that's why it's a very difficult topic to address because, you know, when I told someone recently that I'm going to be presenting on the subject of LDS singles and sexuality, she like smiled and said, you know, is there any overlap between those two subjects? <laughs> you know, meaning betraying this idea that we sort of want to sort of divorce the notion of of singles having sexuality and that, or that they shouldn't have it, or if they're good people, they won't have those feelings. And the reality is, you know, singles have all the f desires that a married adult has. Uh, they just don't have a legitimate outlet. They don't have a legitimate place to express those feelings. And so when one says, how do I deal with those feelings? It, it brings up the question of what do I believe is really right for me? And what do I really believe is living in the way that my integrity can back up and living in a way that I believe is fulfilling the spirit of this law? Because I have seen many people that like have lived the for the strength of youth pamphlet with 99.9% .9 perfection well into adulthood and they're psychologically and socially immature because they're so anxious about any sexual desires or any, you know, feelings that they think the feelings themselves are bad or a threat to their goodness. And so there's a lot of repression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear around the feelings. And I think that while those may be good guidelines for adolescents who often function well, when you have a very black and white notion of how to, how to behave, that's often optimal for adolescents. I don't think it's really the right manual for mid-singles, for example, in terms of thinking about what my relationship should be to my God-given sexuality. Because I think, in my opinion, what the goals are is around being able to be at peace within oneself and with one's sexuality and to use one's sexuality in a way that is pro-social and allows you the capacity to be in an intimate relationship with someone at some point. And in order to be in an intimate relationship with someone at some point, I think you need a basic self-respect and a basic self-acceptance. Now, what that means about what you do with respect to your sexuality 
I think is somewhat individual. And, you know, I think there's, I think if out of shame you're suppressing it and out of a sense that these are just bad feelings, you're not going to function well. I think if you have a sense like I'm not going to engage and I'm going to sort of step away from these feelings because I believe it's the right thing for me to do and I believe I'm a better person for doing it and I believe that I'm more uh, at peace in my soul when I do it, then I think that's what that single should do is to step away from it and to not engage their sexuality at all. Now, if you're a single who feels like, you know, my constant stepping away from it creates anxiety and stress and it and it sort of undermines my connection with myself and other people then I think the question is what is there a way for me to be involved with my sexual desire in a way that is uh, uh, fulfills the goal of me being more at peace with myself and my body and allows me to be in better connection with the people around me so for some I know some singles that means they uh, masturbate. For others, it's allowing themselves a certain amount of of physical engagement that they believe is parallels the level of intimacy in the relationship that they might be involved in, even though they might hold the line around, you know, that they're not going to have intercourse and there's a certain place where they won't go beyond, but they will allow a certain amount of desire and sexuality to come into a, a premarital relationship because they believe it's an important part of that self-acceptance and that ability to develop towards the capacity for an adult relationship. Uh, one of the people that I quoted in my presentation was saying something to the effect of they were quoting a passage in the For the Strength of Youth manual that says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now, but like, do, don't do anything that arouses sexual feelings. Right? And so the person was that I was quoting wrote, you know, hello, you know, that would mean that I can't date, okay, because just going on dates with, with people that I desire anyway is, is a practice of arousing sexual feelings. I mean, and, and part of dating someone is allowing to explore and experience those desires. And, you know, up to a point, and so they were saying, like, I have no intention of breaking the law of chastity in that sense, but you can't literally interpret that because if I'm actually going to be involved to a degree that allows me to make a healthy or sound choice, I need to tolerate that sexual feelings and desires um, are going to be a part of that engagement. And I think that, you know, I think we are very interested in the church. And, and, and sexuality is a tough topic for all people, not just Mormons. But I think because we hold such a high standard around sexuality, and I think a, a, a wonderful standard, and a standard that has a lot of huge upsides to it around commit, a committed relationship for the fullest forms of sexual expression. But we, we are so anxious about it that we, we think about it very categorically. We're still sort of in an adolescent state as members of the church and how we think about the subject. And so I think we... We want to pretend like that those feelings should just not be there, and then when you get married, then they can be there. And that's just not what people's experience is if they have healthy sexual development. So I think the question, the response to the questioner is, I think it means that you need to use your integrity and your relationship with God to think about like what do I believe 
is the way that I need to be engaged with my sexual desire that is God-given, is normal, is, is valuable, it's a gift. And I want to know that the way I'm engaging with it or disengaging with it is facilitating the end of being at peace with myself, knowing I'm living with integrity, and feeling able to be in a meaningful relationship with someone should that come, come my way. And that may look different for some than for others, what that means. You know, some people may masturbate and they have the kinds of thoughts that they think disconnect them from God and disconnect them from a sense of goodness. Uh, then I would say, then maybe that's not the right thing for them. There's others that might say, you know, me masturbating allows me to actually um, feel more at peace, more at ease, more able to just accept the sexuality that God gave me and to tolerate this the abstinence that's a sort of fundamental part of my life right now. So I'm not here to say what people should do so much as that I think you have to think about what's the goal of the law of chastity. I think it's about the ability to love God, which is like our highest ideals, to love ourselves and to love others, to be at peace with ourselves and to be able to be really know and be known. And if you're going to really have intimate relationships with anybody, you have to really be at peace with yourself and at peace with your sexuality. What that means for you behaviorally, I think, is for you to sort through in your own relationship with God and not wait for somebody like me or a church leader to tell you what that is should be for you. I just have to say, this sounds so hard. It's hard. <laughs> because there's, there's no blessing from the institution. You know, if you're married, you're you're on the right track and you're you're doing good and you get the pat on the head or the shoulder or whatever right. and and everything's fine but this is as you're describing it this is like real adulthood of owning your own decisions That's and right. and at some point adulthood has to mean something it can't just be you turn 21 and right. yay you're 21 or or whatever you know however old you right. are so yeah, that's, that's well, it's, a it's tough really hard to find yourself in. It's really hard, and I think it singles get pressed up against that bind in a way that a lot of times married folks don't, because married folks' choices are validated by the the, the cultural ideals, and so they don't have to confront their choices in the same way that singles do. And that's a way in which not getting married forges your development as an adult. I mean, it can. You, you can just live in a place of constant anxiety that you somehow haven't lived up. You somehow God hasn't blessed you with a spouse. You've got your young women's medallion and everything, and it still hasn't come together. You know, Just like I obeyed all the rules, and somehow I must have still failed because it hasn't come together for me, and the fact that I feel these sexual feelings just makes, means I'm a bad person. Or you can say, maybe life doesn't actually work that way. And that's what I'm learning is that there's not any – that while – Obeying the commandments blesses our lives because the more you live your life in line with true concepts, the higher your chances are of living your, happily because you're, you have a good roadmap and you're using it to navigate tough terrain at times. But that's different than saying, I, you know, check the boxes and then I'm going to get blessed with a spouse or, you know, which boxes am I supposed to check now that I'm single? And I have all these same desires of any married adult and no place to express them. Well, I think it, it puts you up against this bind. You take one step one way and there's losses. 
You take another step the other way and there's losses. You can't avoid it. And so really what it means to get stronger is to assert choices in the face of sucky options. And that's what marriage is a lot too, frankly, okay? <laughs> sucky options. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we don't want to think of it that way, but, you know, marriage can press you up against double binds too. I want to have a baby. I'm married to someone who doesn't want to have a baby. Yeah. Okay, so what do I do now? And so, so life often presents those, and the only way out of them is to grow. And I think the way you have to grow, and I think this is part of our theology, is growing into adulthood is to become more autonomous in our discernment, more w- wiser, more able to assert what we really believe is right in our stewardship, which may be just ourselves. But that's theologically what we believe as Mormons, is that if we're going to become like God, it doesn't mean that you know you just are obeying God, and God's obeying His Father and His Father, because then it's just turtles all the way down. You know what I mean? It's not, there's not at some point there is a sense that you have gotten better. You've got to be the arbiter. Yes, being the arbiter of goodness in your specific situation. Of course, you need the spirit and you need wisdom and you need an earnest desire to do what you believe is right. That, I think, is goodness. So one thing I think that we need to address in a podcast maybe next month or something is this idea you're, you're you're touching on having some sort of sexual relationship and being okay with it and being blessed by the spirit and mm-hmm. being, you know, feeling approved by God or something mm-hmm. like that. And that brings up the notion of sacred sexuality. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's one of the, it's kind of like the temple mm-hmm. sex is sacred. So we don't talk mm-hmm. about it and, uh, sacredness and feeling the spirit, you know, on our honeymoon, having sex did not feel like a testimony meeting at the <laughs> end of scout camp. You know, and that as yeah. as a Mormon youth, that is that's what the spirit felt like with right. these testimony meetings, and it, having sex is a totally different experience than right. a testimony oh, meeting. And so we have to think like it would be good, it would be a really productive discussion, I think, to talk yeah. about what is sacredness. That's a good. What, uh, let it, me just say a couple things about that, just so that sure. it's not. Right. So, so we don't a lot just of, leave them for right, a month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, great, I have to wait a month. Uh, so <laughs> I, what I would say is, yes, we often want to say what spiritual is, is conformist, kind of syrupy, sweet feelings. Um, you know, it's like my friend saying, I just can't have sex with a Book of Mormon on the nightstand because, you know, because like those two ideas don't go together. Yeah. Because the yeah. Book of Mormon evokes one kind of human being, one kind of version of her, and having sex is another one, and they don't seem to go together for her. What I mean by a sacred or transcendent experience is, it's hard to explain, but you know, uh, basically this sense that what's sacred is that I really believe, well, let me say it this way, I believe that my choices are creating deeper stability and solidness in me and more capacity to love others and be at peace with myself. That's what I think is at the core of spirituality. That really the mechanism of spirituality is how deeply we can love. And loving other people has a great deal to do with self-acceptance and being at peace with ourselves. And that's really how we come to know God. 
is we start experiencing the transcendence and the kind of oneness of that experience, which sex can embody a kind of transcendent experience of sort of communion with another person around really being with another and sort of losing track of the boundaries. Now, that's the most, you know, extreme expression of it, perhaps. But I think even in very loving relationships, there can be a sort of loss of boundaries that I think is the issue of oneness, that you don't lose yourself in it, but you, you also recognize I'm not better than you or less than you. We are here together. We're part of the body of Christ. And it's that kind of spiritual connection. You know, I think that when we are using our sexuality for goodness, it's facilitating that kind of self-acceptance and connection with others. You're using your sexuality for good, both within yourself and in the context of your relationships. Sometimes using your sexuality for good means completely means restraint. Okay. Sometimes using your sexuality for good means you, you make love to your spouse even when you're tired. And I don't mean the sort of duty frame and all that, but you just like, I care about you and I love you and I, I'm going to share myself with you because I'm invested in your well-being and in the well-being of our marriage. And so... And using your sexuality for good as a single person may include masturbating and being at peace with your body and this capacity that God, that our parents in heaven gave us and and saying that this for now is a way of being at peace in this particular state. But I think people have to figure out what it is that allows them to forge goodness and what choices allow them to forge goodness and bringing their wisest selves to those choices, not the needy, dependent, looking for validation from authorities or others in making those choices. Yeah, I think the last part of that really struck on a lot of the anxiety I think I see around sexuality for Mormons is this constant need for every action to have approval from some kind of authority source. Um, And Yet at the same time, I think instinctively we don't want to go to someone for everything. Like right. you know, we know that we don't want that. Yet we still feel like we're supposed to, um, right. even when we're not supposed to. <laughs> um, exactly. That I, I I find that you know sometimes, like both I've seen this in myself and others, we have this need to categorize everything, um, mm-hmm. and when there's not a manual or a roadmap of this is a spiritual experience, this is a temporal experience, this mm-hmm. is that, this is that. We get really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that can also, I think, in a sexual setting, kill the desire because it's like, oh, crap, am I allowed to feel these things? Am I mm-hmm. right. allowed to do this? <laughs> right. And and what I would say about that is that's just developmentally normative, meaning that when you first start out in life, you need to borrow structure. You need to borrow selfhood because you have to function within a frame or else the world's too overwhelming. And so it's not shocking that we want that kind of structure. And I think what Christ was the most critical of, though, was when people would then make the the structure goodness in and of itself and then judge other people with the structure rather Mm -hmm. than living by the spirit of the law. And we like to look down our nose at the Sadducees and the Pharisees and not see that we are doing that very same, very human tendency ourselves. And I think that if I had to run a a 15 million person church, I would probably want to focus on obedience too, (laughs) because it's a big ship to steer. 
But I think obedience or compliance has its place, but it's only half of the picture, and you have to really look at the issue of integrity and you're developing and forging your own sense of right and wrong that is at least equally, if not more, important. And I, I Christine Hagland interviewed me on this in the dialogue in the winter issue, which if anyone wants to read it is on my blog, um, on my professional website. But I, I talk a lot about this issue of the development of integrity, which I think is very related to the issues that singles face around sexuality. This was a great conversation. We've had some good, good questions. Um, so thank you again, uh, Jennifer and Laurel and all listeners. Feel free to leave comments and leave questions on the website or through the email that we have on the blog post. Great. See you next month. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that discussion. As usual, I did. As for next week, next week will be a part two of our uh, alternative spiritual experiences or how we, other ways that we might feel the spirit. We had an episode about a month or two ago regarding this, and I have a collection of three more interviews that talk about vastly different ways that one might nourish their spiritual soul. So please look forward to that. And, as always, keep keeping it weird. Weird.